Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 6, is where I'm going to read. Before this, though, the Lord had brought his case against Israel. He gives them a correction. He gives them a rebuke to which a hypothetical Israelite replies to Yahweh God, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Sarcastically, he says, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? It required one ram to bring a sin offering, so offering thousands of rams is a bit of hyperbole and exaggeration. With 10,000 rivers of olive oil, as if that could be done, shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? In other words, the question is, God, what will make you happy? What's going to satisfy you? And then God speaks and says, He has shown you, immortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. God, what do you want out of us? I want you to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly. God, what do you expect out of us? I want you to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly. I'm going to talk about justice here today, and I, I want to let you know that I'm very aware that this word is, people have told me it's, it's a triggering word. It's, it's not a word that we like to say or use. It feels like a 2023 cuss word for some people, and it's an anomaly for others. We just hired a, a website company to help us kind of do some work on our church website, and there's, part of their suggestion was, why don't you remove the word justice from your website because it can be triggering and offensive to people, especially you guys are in Florida. That can be triggering for you there, and yet the Bible uses the word justice thousands of times. And I just got to tell you, church, we believe in the Bible around here. So y'all pray with me. God help in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Slap someone high five and say, let's talk justice. I wish I could say I learned about justice from the church, but that's not where I learned about justice. I did learn about justice from Scripture because Scripture is full of the word, of the concept, of God's way. I have a very good friend named Brian who's preached for me here and one of my longtime friends. And I remember when he was in a series of deep reflection and, and really had written me a letter and saying, hey, Mike, you know, as we're studying the Scripture and we're looking at the Bible. And by the way, I want to go over here today because... We've been so formed by websites and social media posts and even the prophets of our day. I would like to bring us to the Bible. I would like to point us to the scriptures. And man, I'm, I'm, I'm totally good with your teachers and spiritual fathers and prophets and all the different things that we have. But oh, could we be the people of the word? When God said to my, through Micah to these people, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what he was referring to was, God's already said this in his word. 
His scripture has already said this. And when my friend Brian writes me this letter, he was on this meditation retreat. He's like, Mike, I just can't escape it. This one word pops up again and again and again, and it is the word justice. And so I was reading Frederick Douglass. It's Black History Month, and I'm not sure if it's a good Black History Month if you haven't read at least a little Frederick Douglass. And in his... In his masterpiece, The Meaning of the Fourth of July for the Negro, he says, fellow citizens, I will not enlarge further on your national inconsistencies. The existence of slavery in this country brands your republicanism as a sham, your humanity as base pretense, and your Christianity as a lie. It destroys your moral power abroad. It corrupts your politicians at home. It saps the foundations of religion and makes your name a hissing and a byword and a mocking on the earth. So it reminded me, I, was, I had picked up, Esau Macaulay wrote Reading While Black, one of my books I've enjoyed more in the last couple years. He says, it's difficult for the African American believer to look deeply into the history of Christianity and not be profoundly shaken. In so much as it arises in response to the church's historic mistreatment, the black secular protest, this means the black protest without the Bible, against religion is one of the most understandable developments of the West. If they are wrong, and they are, Esau Macaulay, who is a minister, who is, anyway, a guy I like a lot, it is a wrongness born out of considerable pain. I too am frustrated by the way the scripture has been used to justify the continual assault on black bodies and souls. Some 130 years ago, actually 150, 60 years ago, the black pastor and abolitionist, James W.C. Pennington, put words to our anxiety. He said, does the Bible condemn slavery without any regard to circumstance or not? I, for one, desire to know. In other words, he's like, the Bible gets used to justify slavery. And so this black pastor 150 years ago was saying, wait a minute, I need to know. Tell me the truth. Does the Bible say this is Okay. He says, my repentance, my faith, my hope, my love, my perseverance, I conceal it not. I repeat, all of this turns on this one point. If I am deceived here, if the word of God does sanction slavery, then I want another book, I want another repentance, I want another faith, and I want another hope. On first read, the Bible does appear to say th things that we don't want it to say. But when you read the Bible, you actually find it's more than enough. The Christian narrative, our core theological principles, and our ethical imperatives create a world in which slavery becomes unimaginable and untenable. Jesus' interpretive method allows us to plainly state God does not intend for slavery for any of his children. Slavery is and always has been forever wrapped in sin. The Old Testament later and the New Testament create an imaginative world where slavery becomes more and more untenable. Stated differently, God created a people who would theologically deconstruct slavery. Christians began to make strong theological cases against slavery as early as the 4th century in a way that would stand out among their non-Christian peers. What's even more interesting is that no society that preceded 18th century abolitions contended that slavery itself was fundamentally immoral. Only Christians. The widespread move to abolish slavery is a Christian innovation, which Macaulay would say is a balm for my soul and my heart as a black man. 
Last week I described this hunger and this movement that we come out of, a revival movement of spirit-filled people that began with a revival in Azusa Street in Los Angeles from William Seymour, and there's been this spirit-filled revolution. The question that has haunted me has been, a hundred years later, why are spirit-filled churches more known for speaking in tongues than doing justice? And I believe in speaking in tongues, and I believe in prophecies, and I believe all of the above, but when you read about the Azusa Street Revival, what you find was a theme core, script two of them for them, where first one was Joel chapter two, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. The second monster text of the Azusa Revolution was Luke chapter four, 18, 19, Jesus stands up, unrolls a scroll, says, on this day, this scripture has been, has been fulfilled In your day, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news. Everybody that's evangelical loves that. Preach the good news. But then they leave off one little part of the sentence. Good news to the poor. Recovery of sight to the blinds. A freedom, a liberty for those who are oppressed. A setting free of the captives and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's a lot of talk about revivals right now with what's going on up at Asbury, and one of the critiques has come from some people that have said, revivals are nothing because there's been no revival in America that's ever been good for people of color. The problem has been the pushback, which has been, well, no, there has been a revival that's been good for people of color. It was a revival that started in 1906 that was based on Luke chapter 4, which recognizes rightly that when you preach the gospel... There will not just be gospel to get people's souls in heaven when they die. There is a gospel that is good news to people's bodies while they live. And there seems to be a choice that we feel like, ah, oh, if I, I, I feel like I either have to go to the right and, and, and be about righteousness or I've got to lean left and be about justice. And yet what we're going to find is that God gives us no choice. Like you don't get to choose if you lean left or you lean right. If you go to God, we're like eagles. We mount up with wings like eagles. We're not left wing. We're not right wing. We are both wings if you follow Jesus. So we come to this passage that is very well known but misunderstood, which says, what does God want? He wants you to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly. Do justice and love mercy and walk humbly. And there seems to be like, a cho- it's almost like there's a choice. There, you got the justice people over here, but a lot of times they're, they're, they're not merciful and they're not humble. But then you got some people over here, they might preach humility, but they don't do justice. And what God says is, I want you to do all of it. I require you to do all of it. I'm calling the church to be about all of it, all of the above. This is A, B, C, or D. The answer is D, all of the above. Here's the entire sermon in a nutshell. If you want to split early, just get this. When our Christianity lacks justice, we forfeit our credibility on earth. But when our justice lacks mercy and humility, we forfeit the authority of heaven. I'm going to say it again. When our Christianity lacks justice, the world looks at us and said, your Christianity is a lie. When our Christianity lacks justice, we forfeit our credibility on the earth. They say, I can't listen to you. I'm sorry. 
So a lot of us become activists and we become, mm, I'm going to be all about it. I'm going to go get my fingers, fingernails dirty. I'm going to make a dent in the earth. The problem is when you embrace justice, but you're angry and bitter and cynical and, and vindictive, what happens is now you forfeit the authority of heaven because God demands that his justice be done with his heart. His justice says things must be right. His heart says things must be merciful. And his nature is things must always be humble. This is better news than you can imagine. And I'm telling you, oh man, my dream for us in Greenhouse is that we would be justice fluent. And you would know what that means. What that means is we mean everything that God means by justice. And we mean merciful when we do it. And we mean humble as we play it out. You would know that's what we mean. So, so what is justice? Let's kind of start there. So I married a Puerto Rican. My wife is here. I married a Puerto Rican. I did not know I was just marrying a human. I was marrying a whole culture. Like I wasn't really aware of that, right? So, so I get married. I, I remember as I, I get in, immersed, baptized into Puerto Rican culture and came to find out that uh, among the greatness, the great things of Puerto Rican culture is the food. We got some Boricua in the house, all right? So, <laughs> there it is. Viva la raza, all right? Um, <laughs> so, so, I get married, and I remember going places with other Puerto Ricans. I'll oh, check it out. They, got, they sell Spanish food here. And they'd be like, Shh. Like, hey, let me go buy you some Spanish food. To which they'd say, don't bother, get me a burger. <laughs> Am I right? You go somewhere, you're like, well, no, but let me get you some Spanish food. I'm trying to be like, I don't know. I'm trying to be like Puerto Rican woke, you know? And they're kind of like, uh, you're still sleeping if you think that's Puerto Rican food, all right? Is, is what, how this would kind of go down. To which I'm like, no, no, no. Look, they've even got, they got some flan. They're like, do, do you mean flan? You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. Let's, let, and, and you order this, this concoction of something and it's got bubbles in it and, and they're like, I... I don't know what you think that is, but that is not flan. That, that's, that's not with all the bubbles and the blah, blah, blah. Like, no, no, that's, that's not what it is. To which I, I might want to argue with them, and I'm kind of like, no, yes, it is. Yeah, oh, trust me, it is. To which at some point, you have to learn the hard way, which is this. Puerto Rican food belongs to Puerto Ricans, and if you want to know what Puerto Rican food is, you got to go talk to a a Puerto Rican. There's a level of pride and folly when a gringo tries to tell a Puerto Rican what mofongo is. Now, all the Puerto Ricans are hungry now, so they might take me up on, we're leaving early, you know. <laughs> Gloria a Dios and adios is what they're about to say. Because there's nothing like Puerto Rican flan. Not, not the stuff out of the frozen section at Winn-Dixie. Puerto Rican flan is going to be in heaven. At the wedding feast of the lamb. And you won't be lactose or egg intolerant. You'll be able to enjoy it. But when it comes to justice, we've got a problem because the church has so neglected this word that is spoken hundreds and thousands of times. And the church has so made excuses for why we've not enacted what God has said he requires. 
And the church has not wanted to go there like the website company that says, oh, could you just not use that word because it's a triggering word and, and because it's triggering and because it's been misunderstood and misappropriated and, and, and misdefined, we've decided not to do it. And when we do not define the terms the way that God himself defines the terms, we leave justice to come up to be a moving target where the definition gets decided by whoever wants to. And so now you've got a bunch of gringos trying to tell Puerto Rico what flan is. And they're saying, check out my flan. And they're like, hey, that's not flan. That's not how you say it. And you're getting it all wrong. And that's what people are doing. They're coming to God and say, and even now you'll see Republicans and you see Democrats. You see people that are this way and that way. And everyone's using the word justice. No one knows what it is. And then we're all frustrated when it doesn't happen. Which means if you want some flan, ask a Puerto Rican. And if you want justice... Ask the judge. So, so what is it? Justice in the dictionary would be the maintenance, administration of that which is just. Well, what is just? That means acting or being in conformity to what is morally upright and good or righteous. Well, that's interesting. What is righteousness? Righteousness is a, in the New Testament, it's a Greek word, dikaiosune, from, from the root word dike, like D-I-K-E, dike, which means a, a judgment or a verdict. Listen to this. It's a verdict from a judge. Righteousness is the verdict from a judge, means the, the judge gives the verdict of that which is right or that which is wrong. When Plato, the philosopher, was trying to pontificate upon what Athens needed, he said Athens has an injustice problem. Athens has a problem, and the only thing that will save Athenian culture, according to Plato, was justice. Now, interestingly, the word justice that we get translated, if you're reading Plato's Republic or whatever, is dikaiosune. It's a Greek word. It's the same Greek word that we get used, that we use when we go to like Romans 1, where it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and the Gentile, because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The dikaiosune, the justice of God is revealed from faith the faith through the gospel. Now, this is important because when we come to scripture, I hear people often say, Mike, well, in the New Testament, you hear the New Testament using the word righteousness, but we really don't need to give just as much attention because even though it's used many, many times in the Old Testament, you don't find it a lot in the New Testament because in the New Testament, you find the word righteousness. I would submit to you right now that what we have in the New Testament term righteousness is what you had in the Old Testament, two words, which were righteousness and justice. Let me sort of prove my point. Psalm 89 verse 14 says it like this. It describes the fact that God's throne itself it says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. In other words, where does the judge give his decay from? From his throne, which is grounded by the twin towers, the wonder twins of righteousness and justice. I'm not trying to make too much of Puerto Rican culture or Spanish culture right now, but I love it when you're reading the Spanish Bible. If you want to read one of the great verses where it says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. The word for righteousness is it's mas buscar primeramente el reino de Dios y su justicia. All the, all the Spanish speakers, how do you say righteousness in Spanish? Justicia, J-U-S-T-I-C-I-A, justicia, justicia. 
Because righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Let me make the point more. Psalm, 70, Psalm 99. You have established equity. You have executed righteousness and justice. Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, the royal son your righteousness. Psalm 103 verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Psalm 106, verse 3, blessed are those who keep justice, he who does righteousness at all times. Psalm 89, verse 14, righteousness and justice, God, he already gave you that one, are the foundation of your throne. Hosea 2, 19, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and in mercy. Amos 5, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an everlasting stream. And then finally, the one I, I'm just so challenged by, Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, fascinating verse to me. It says, for this is why I've chosen him. Speaking of Abraham, this is the father of our faith. Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had father Abraham. God, why would you choose father Abraham? Because I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Some of your versions say, to teach them to do righteousness and justice so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. I hear everyone saying, God, we claim all of the promises you made to Abraham. Amen. Are you willing to do what God called Abraham to do, which was righteousness and justice? A good definition of discipleship is training people to do righteousness and justice. Righteousness is oftentimes what we consider to be personal morality. You, you watch who you're sleeping with and you watch where, how your mouth talks. and It's what you're going on in you with just you. Justice tends to be morality gone public. It's a lot of times like that. What God says is that you are an individual and although you have a private life, you're, even though you've got a personal life, your faith is personal, but your faith is never private. Your life is personal, but your life is never private, which is why God would say your godliness is defined both by what's going on in the interior of you that no one can see, hear, or touch, or discern, and what goes on through you to the world around you. You are both the product of your desired embracing of the righteousness of God and the justice of God. When we neglect the justice of God, we lose our credibility on earth. The world around the American church has seen our lack of justice and cried baloney. Like Frederick Douglass, your Christianity is a lie. To which we're like, hey, I'm just standing up for Jesus. What's everyone's problem? The problem is, if you're really standing up for Jesus, you won't just do his righteousness, you'll also do his... This is what's at stake. So what is justice? Well, I'm going to write down, I'm going to, I'll kind of lay these out for you. There's, there's really, there's at least these. Justice is going to mean biblically equality. It means equality. At, at some level, this is just so we all understand how mind-bending the Bible is. I, I realize, like when I was at UF, I would study the Bible and, and every professor's main agenda was to let you know why the Bible has an inconsistency or why the Bible is um, it's problematic or whatever. It's, it's, it could be oppressive. And the Bible has certainly been used for such purposes. But it's really fascinating. Like you read the book of Leviticus, like I'm, I'm going through the Leviticus now. Not like you get up and rah-rah reading, exactly. You don't wake up in the morning, get out your cup of coffee and say, gosh, I'm feeling Leviticus now. <laughs> it's not really what happens. But I'll tell you what you do find. You find things 
that when you actually read it aright, it's mind-blowing. Give the foreigner and the Israelite the same treatment. That's what it says. Now, I know all of us are like, well, of course. Here's my question to you. Why do all of us in this room, when, we, when I say equality, you're like, well, of course equality. I just want to ask you a question. Do you know why you think justice means equality? This book. This book. In a tribalistic society, thousands of years ago, everybody knew. Here's the, here's the rules of the game. The rules of the game in 1500 BC are like the rules of the game now. I look out for me and mine. Me and my people. We look out for, like these days people don't say look out for number one, but people do say look out for your own people. Nobody else. And what the law actually said was, if you write laws that put Israelites to the advantage and disadvantage the foreigner, for example, that is an unjust law. I just need you all understanding, someone would have read the Old Testament, would have read the Torah of Moses, and they would have said, what? That's absurd. Nobody does that. The the fact that your minds aren't blown even hearing something like that is just showing you how much gratitude we should give to God that the Bible made its way into Western civilization to hear the stuff we've got. I'm not saying we're perfect. What I'm saying is there is number one, justice, it would mean for sure it would mean equality. A second thing justice is going to mean is special concern for the vulnerable. Special concern for what we might call the quartet of the vulnerable. And by that I would mean, I'm, gonna, I'm speaking of orphans, talking about widows, talking about the poor, talking about the oppressed. Actually, what am I forgetting here? The foreigner, that's what I meant, the foreigner. I just said it, there it is. If you can read that, there it is, the foreigner. All right, yep. Special concern for for these. So like today, I think we've got something going on afterwards regarding when, as it relates to foster. Don't we have some stuff going on after service today? When, when the Bible describes the orphan, the, the child that's been left, that's been afflicted. Even right now, I'm on a, uh, I was at a missions meeting a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about the, the war in, in, in Russia and Ukraine. And oh, it's just tragic. What, what broke my heart, though, as I was hearing the stories was like in Russia, they burned through lots of their, their homegrown people like a lot of the people having to fight in this war now are foreigners, immigrants that went to Russia because it was so bad somewhere else that that's where they would end up and so they're poor and they're broke. And so here they are having to fight in a war for a country that's not really theirs because they've got no other options in their, pa- their family. The Bible says if your heart doesn't break for the vulnerable, you're missing God's heart. Justice is especially gonna be concerned about those who cannot, they cannot advocate for themselves. There's things, by the way, there's things that we do in our church. You know, like this means things like, for example, we have, several years ago, we began a reparations fund, okay? What that meant, and again, I'm not trying to trigger people, okay? But we had, uh, we we looked and we're saying, okay, wait a minute, there's this, this discussion of reparations in America. We're like, okay, well, the church should at least be involved in this conversation. And we just said as a church, if there are descendants of slaves that have been disadvantaged in ways that they have not had options that they would have been able to have, we opened up a fund that people could give toward where 
people that would have to drop out of school. So we have, just so you all know, we have a partnership with Santa Fe College, for example, where we have a fund. It's, it's called a restoration fund. And I'm just letting you guys know, we had to change the name because the name reparations was seen as offensive. In fact, this had to, can I say this publicly? I'm not sure if I can. I'm going to say it. Uh, I, we had to have a meeting. I had to have a meeting with the president of Santa Fe that was like, Hey, we need you to change the name. To which like, no, we don't want to change the name. Like, the, the, the concept of reparations is in the Bible. Like, it's a, it's, a biblical, it's a biblical principle. I want people knowing the people of God believe the Bible. I'm so tired of meeting people. They're like, well, you believe the Bible? Well, look, here's the word reparations. When's the last time you went to church and you heard that word? I'm like, uh, Sunday? And they're like, oh, okay. I want us to be the kind of place that when people say, do you take the whole Bible literally and seriously? We're like, we take this thing seriously and say, Jesus, do what you, whatever you want to do. So bottom line is we had to change the name of the fund. I'm just letting you all know. The Restoration Fund, literally, there are stories every single semester of young men and women that would have had to drop out of school and they've been able to continue their education. They're being educated because people like you have said, we're going to go bring restoration. They don't have to go to our church. There are no strings attached. What I'm letting you know is we're trying to say, God, what does it mean to, to do something about widows, the poor, the foreigner? What does it mean to, to do something? By the way, we do things for foreigners or some of these things that we do in, in the same way. Charles Finney is one of my revivalist heroes who saw all sorts of people turn to God. He said the genuineness of someone's repentance will be proved when they get up off their knees and get their hearts right with God that they begin to get active in changing the world around them. Some of you today might need to come up to this altar and you might need for God to do something in your heart. And it's got to start there, but it can't end there. So a second thing is the vulnerable. A third area, interestingly to me, is, is generosity. It's, it's interesting to me that one of the concepts you actually find in scripture is that when someone shares their possessions, they are actually doing what the Bible calls justice. In Psalm 112, verse 5, we, we see this concept coming out. In Psalm 112, verse 5, the writer says it like this, Goodwill come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. So I'll give you an example on this. We have in our church a benevolence fund. What that benevolence fund means is people that are in need, people that are needy, that fund is for those that are in need, whoever they are. So, we have a, so if you've ever had like in your heart, man, I want to go help the poor. I probably every month of my life when I'm giving, when I pay tithes to the church, almost every month I also just put money in the benevolence fund. I don't know when someone has a need. We try to be smart about this. We have a deacon board that works with people and we, get, we try to do helping that helps. We don't just throw money at issues and problems. We try to do it in wise ways and empowering ways. But we want to be about about helping. Literally, the Bible says, when you are generous with your possessions, the Bible equates that with justice. I'm, what I'm trying to give you a, a picture of today is, you might even today, like, you're like, man, what about Missionary Sam? When you give to help Missionary Sam, you are doing justice. When you give to our Benevolence Fund, you are doing justice. When you give to our Restoration Fund, you are doing justice. So much I'll hear people say, man, I wouldn't even know how to do justice. Well, I'll tell you one way, be generous. And then number four, and this is just, I would just say it like this. Justice and righteousness, it's that which is right. That which is right in the eyes of the judge. And who is the judge? 
Justice is that which is right in the eyes of the judge, which means there is a moral side to this. So if you lean right and you're like, oh, what about like traditional moral righteousness? That is justice. Like, trust me, the scripture, you know what term the scripture, one of the terms the scripture uses for having sex outside of marriage? Defrauding. When you sleep with someone you're not married to, you defraud them. Oh, I could prove it to you. If you just went in my office, I have had more counseling sessions with more people that is related to what happened to them with sex outside of marriage. And it might have even been, because our culture right now says, well, as long as it's consensual, it's moral. Which God says, no. As long, Martin Luther King would say, something is just when a law on the earth squares with a law in heaven. What makes something right is not that it was consensual. If a seven-year-old consents to sleep with a 50-year-old, I hope we all agree that's wrong. But there was consent. It's still wrong. Well, what about if they're 17? What about if they're 19? Listen, I can tell you, Scripture says when a man or a woman sleeps with another man or another woman and they are not in the covenant of marriage, they are defrauding them. And I could, I have, I could show you so many ways that people's hearts have been broken by things, the, the piles of stuff. That, that is actually a justice area. Literally, when a boyfriend says to his girlfriend, you know what, we're not going to sleep together anymore unless we get married, that young man is doing justice and righteousness in God's eyes. So I was on, in this missions meeting last week, and there was, um, they've been having these Syrian, you know, these Syrian earthquakes and they were going through the rubble. There's been thousands of people dead. And they heard this little faint voice as they were taking some of the rubble out. And there was like this little seven-year-old girl that was shielding her younger brother as they're pulling off the rubble. And she could hear the people, and she began to say to them, please come save us. Please come rescue us. Please come rescue us. And the missionary's telling the story. He said, but what she said next is what haunted me. She said, if you'll save me and my brother, I will be your slave. And the missionary asked, what kind of a world does she live in where she knew potentially her only option is slavery? To which God says, if you belong to me, if your soul has been saved on the inside, I'm calling you to do something on the outside. Because a world like that has got to be changed. So when our, when our Christianity lacks justice, we forfeit our credibility. But the flip side also is true. Because he said, I want you to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly. When our justice lacks mercy and humility, we forfeit the authority of heaven. I saw this with Will Smith. When Will Smith did the slap herd around the world. Remember that? Keep that name out of your mouth. Bam. I was like, is that for real? Like, I was watching it like. <laughs> rewind, rewind. I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like, anybody else like, no, this is a joke. Man, this is. I'm like, oh. I mean, I did not. And immediately you saw there was this mercilessness with Will because the world that we live in now has basically equated justice with vengeance and vindication. 
So I was reading a brother from Africa, and he's like, you know, the difference between justice in Africa and justice in the West is that in Africa, we look at justice as a restorative thing, that you know justice has been done when you have restored both the aggressor and the victim because all of us are at times aggressors and all of us are at times victims. Which is why justice must be, in fact, rabbis, and I'll come back to this at the end, but the rabbis would describe the word shalom. Everyone say shalom. Look at some of you and say shalom, y'all. Shalom, what, what do we usually think in English for the word shalom? Peace. The rabbis would say shalom means peace with justice. Which is why when you see people marching in the streets and they've got signs that say, no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace, they're actually prophesying. Whereas <laughs> some of the old school would say, they ain't lying, they prophesying. Because when there is no justice, there can be no biblical peace. Now, of course, the problem comes to how we're defining justice because oftentimes what we mean by justice is not what someone else means by justice, which is why God says, if you're gonna get justice right, you're gonna have to do justice, but also love mercy and walk humbly because when Will has made the slap, and haven't all of us slapped someone we shouldn't? Haven't all of us said something we shouldn't? Haven't all of us been in our feelings and, and done what we shouldn't? Haven't, I mean, I, I realize he did that in front of all those people to which you might say, well, yeah, but you get paid millions of bucks. Well, that, that's what you get. Is there, is there something that's happened to our culture that while our culture claims we want justice, we have forsaken mercy? It is a merciless culture. I've even heard people say when the calls for mercy came out, they said, oh, your call for mercy is a call for exploitation. That mercy would be, it triggers me. And friends, I got to tell you, if you're triggered by the word mercy, then you're going to hate heaven because heaven is the place where we rejoice that his mercies are new every morning. This is the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. The scripture says godly sorrow leads to repentance. Worldly sorrow leads to regret. Godly justice leads to shame. Worldly justice leads to shame. Godly justice leads to repentance and change and transformation. We want godly justice. Because when people are ashamed, they'll, they'll hide their lust on the outside, but they're still lusting on the inside. When people are ashamed, they'll hide their racism on the outside, but they're still racist on the inside. When someone's ashamed, all they're going to do is take their darkness and go and take it down deeper, or you'll never see it. The Proverbs are full of these verses. When someone's heart is wrong, their lips are going to say all kinds of lies to you, but their heart's not with you. But when justice comes with Mercy and humility. Oh, guys, I'm telling you, this is what Jesus does. Only in Jesus Christ do justice and mercy and humility come together. Our culture is appropriately demanding justice, but our culture has dangerously forsaken mercy. And justice without mercy can restrain some behavior temporarily, but it can never change the heart permanently. I want justice with mercy and humility because when we get that, we get what Jesus brings and that changes hearts. John Perkins was here at our church preaching and he's one of my heroes and I remember he was preaching on justice in some way and a couple people came up and they were both at the same altar. They're both angry for different reasons. 
they're both upset. One person's upset about one thing. One person's upset about another. And, and I just remember these people coming at him. And he walks up to him. And he says, oh, oh, my precious brother, come here. And I just watched him. It, it, it was like diffusing a bomb. I'm like, rebuke that man. I'm like, put him in his place. The man deserved shame. And he just pulled him to the side and he just mercied him. And then there's this woman and she was upset about something else. And he said, oh, sweetheart, come here, come here, come here. You need a grandpa's hug, come here. And he just mercied. And it's amazing how mercy melts the human heart. Because when you get caught in your act of adultery, and when they throw you in the dust, and the law says, stone those people. And who knows why the man's not there, but the woman's there. When the law said both are supposed to be there, but the woman's about to get stoned to death. And all of our culture and all the pundits on social media, they all say, shame on you. You adulteress, shame on you, you pornographer. Shame on you, you racist. Shame on you, you fornicator. Shame on you, you loser. Shame on you. And then the scripture says, the one who is justice and mercy and humility kneels down in the dust. And I don't know what he wrote. But I know why he wrote it. Because she needed more than justice. She'd be dead with only justice. And he writes in the dirt, and the accusers begin to drop their rocks. Whatever he wrote, it made them drop their rocks and take off. And her face is down, and in a culture that says, shame on you, the only thing more shameful in that moment was a rabbi that would be down in the dust because this rabbi took all the shame on himself. He says, no shame on you. Where's your accusers? She says, I don't know. They're all gone. He says, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Jesus brings truth and grace. He brings justice and mercy and humility. He is the answer. What our, our culture thinks it's longing for this, this thing, this, this, this vengeance. What our culture doesn't realize is that Will Smith doesn't need no shame on Will. We're all Will Smith, are we not? We're all that woman caught in the act of adultery, are we not? And yet the, the danger is when you begin to get a little bit of this justice or righteousness thing right, the danger is you get self-righteous. Once you, it's like, I'll watch it. You'll see a guy, he has slept with so many girls. And last week he repented finally. And for seven days now he hasn't slept with someone. And now he sees someone else that's sleeping with someone. He's like, and he's judging them. And it's like, bro, you were doing that seven days ago. Well, but I'm done. Say, like, could you give the guy mercy? Can you, because people don't tend to repent just because you, you, I showed them. I told them. Have any of you ever responded because someone put you in your place? I'll tell you how you get changed. It's when you realize you and me put Jesus in his place. That melts my heart and changes me because grace and mercy and humility 
and justice, they do what nothing else can do. God is just. He can't overlook sin. He's not going to overlook unrighteousness. He's not going to overlook injustice. He will not. But on the cross, he brings the two together. He brings these, this, this justice and mercy together. It's, which is why we've got to be humble. He's like, if you, when, you, when your Christianity lacks justice, you lack the you lack credibility on earth. But when your justice is devoid of mercy and humility, you lose the authority of heaven. It's like going to a restaurant after church and you go to an all-you-can-eat buffet and, and, and you're like living with self-control and you're like, you know what? You're sort of like on a diet or whatever. And so, it, so you're like, I'm only going up one time. And you see people going out for like their third visit to the all-you-can-eat buffet. And you look at them and you're like, these poor souls, these poor pagans with no self-control. Which was you? A day ago, before you started your diet this morning. <laughs> but as soon as you start a diet, you notice how much everyone else overeats. Beware of you being all about justice for your one issue. Your one issue. Oh, you, and, and, and this is the danger of justice and righteousness. You know the problem in America. The problem in America is always them. You know the problem. It's... It's abortion, it's racism, it's oppression, it's abuse of authority, it's laziness, it's, and there's, it's, it's so obvious what the, you know, it's so humbling to read Proverbs, really, go read Proverbs, the same chapter Proverbs will say, you know what the problem is, you got a lazy man, he's lazy and he's going to go broke and he's going to be hungry because he's a lazy bum, that's basically what Proverbs says. In the same chapter, it says, you got some people, they're totally diligent and they work their butts off, but you know what happens? There's oppression in the systems and oppression comes and blows away everything he worked really hard for. Proverbs actually says the problem is laziness and oppression. It's systems and it's the person's entitled heart, whatever that might be. The Bible is so humbling because it's so easy to be, you know the problem, it's the sexually immoral. It's them on the left. It's them on the right. What the Bible says the problem is, it's me. The pr if the last few years have not, like I, I'll tell you this as a pastor, I have gotten so many things wrong. I am so dependent on the mercy of God. I am so dependent on the mercy of God. And so are you. I was reading a book this week. It said, watch out when, when you hear a story. At best, people end up ultimately remembering 50% of the story. So whatever story you hear, you're getting like, ah, their, their version, their, their twisted little version of this is the proverb, that was the proverb. This is, that's why the Bible's like, hey, when you see stuff that goes on, do justice, demand justice, but love mercy and walk humbly enough to admit that you've got blind spots. Okay, Mike, so what, would, what might mercy look like? Let me just give you a bunch of examples. It's up on the screen, but here's a boatload of examples. What might it look like to do justice in the real world? Adoption. Adoption is doing mercy. Uh, open your home to foster children. Raise your voice for policing practices. Use influence for pastoral and ministry accountability. Refuse to sweep sexual abuse under the rug. Stop looking at porn. Literally, one out of three people doing porn are involved in porn or human traffic. Don't tell me you're against human trafficking if you're looking at porn. Keep going here. Use your voice for educational opportunities and traditionally challenged zip codes. Uh, Chris Jate, one of our elders, he goes and, and does tutoring with kids in, in one part of the city that, are, that have like zip codes where chances are that kid's not going to graduate high school. He's tutoring kids in one country. 
Lakeisha, does he go to your, do you open up your lab? Lakeisha opens up her lab. So you got a kid that never would have made step foot in a lab at the University of Florida where a professor opens up their lab. What's Chris doing? What's Lakeisha doing? Tell me. That's justice. That's justice, all right? That's doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly. Uh, look for the widows in the church and discover their needs. That's justice according to the Bible. Microchurch is coming alongside families, fostering children to support, marching in the right times, protesting for the right causes, business owners not maximizing profits to provide good health care for their employees. That's justice. Doctors and dentists risking their well-being, using vacation time to go to nations with urgent needs. That's justice. Donate time to Sarah to speak with women about keeping their babies instead of aborting. That's justice. Teachers choosing to work in lower-income schools, even though it's going to be harder to provide quality education to students that otherwise would get the shaft. Employees willing to risk their well-being to speak up for a woman who was harassed. Children standing up for a bullied classmate. By the way, that's justice right there. You're in you know, seventh grade and some kid's bullying another kid. You step up and you're like, hey, stop talking like that about him. That's doing justice. Tutoring immigrants in English to help transition and find work. Repairing cars for single mothers. That's justice. Stop sleeping with people you're not married to. That's justice. Support Missionary Sam. That's justice. Support our justice fund. Support our restoration fund. Support our benevolence fund. Repent of your own sins. Get involved in our mentoring and tutoring, Tess and Wendy, who lead us in things like that. All sorts of opportunities here in town where you could be a part of doing justice in the real world. <laughs> I'm always fascinated by these marches that were taking place. Here's a quote. False, uh, it was Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday dawn and Martin was in jail, Martin Luther King, that is. Uh, we planned a march from the New Pilgrim Baptist Church to the city jail for the afternoon of Easter Sunday. By the time the church ended, some 5,000 people had gathered, dressed in their Sunday best. But the marchers set out in a festive mood. Suddenly, they saw police, fire engines, firemen with hoses in front of them blocking their path. Bull Connor bellowed, turn this group around. 5,000 people stopped and waited for instructions from their leaders. I can't say we knew what to do. So I asked the people to get down on their knees and pray. Suddenly, Reverend Charles Billups jumped up and hollered, the Lord is with this movement. Off your knees, we're going on. Stunned at first, Bull Connor yelled, stop him, stop him. But none of the police moved a muscle. Even the police dogs were perfectly calm, miraculously. I saw one fireman, tears in his eyes, just let the hose drop to his feet. Our people marched between the red fire trucks singing, I want Jesus to walk with me. I want Jesus to walk with me. I'll never forget one old lady. She said, great God Almighty done parted the Red Sea one more time. <laughs> I want Jesus to walk with me. I want Jesus the prince of peace. What is peace? Shalom. What is shalom? It's peace with justice. God, what will satisfy you? What's going what's gonna to satisfy you, God? What, what, will make, what will get me satisfied before you and me? To which he says, I want you to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly, which leads us in a very bad spot because how do we do such a thing? How, how can we get to that place? Because the reality about you and me is you and me are both aggressors 
and we're victims. Like we've been, we've been victimized and we've done what is wrong. How, what's the answer? The only answer is the one who himself is justice and mercy and humility embodied. And he comes to a cross. And one woman I was reading this week said, you know, I, I was struggling. I went into church. I didn't want to hear some religious platitudes. And I heard how Jesus was lynched and it perked my ears and how they gathered false witnesses to talk about him. And I said, wait, I, I get that. And and they put him to a trial, and he got a miscarriage of justice to get put up on a cross, where he ultimately gets lynched and put up on a cross, where he gets killed up on a tree. And all of a sudden, it hit me. Jesus, you understand me. You get me, even if no one else does. And she said, the gospel is the best news any poor person ever heard, any oppressed person ever heard. And the gospel is the best news you've ever heard. Because in the gospel, in the gospel, God justifies, it is with the heart one believes unto, is ju- believes and is justified. With the mouth you confess and you get, you get redeemed by Jesus himself. You get redeemed. And, and I end it like this. That, that familiar story of the young man that's committed a great a great atrocity that's going to cost him more than he can imagine. Not deathly, anything like that, but it's going, to, it's going to break him. It's going to break his bank. Standing before the judge, the judge declares him guilty. Brings down the gavel. This man is guilty. And the fine is going to be many, many, many thousands of dollars more than this young man can pay, to which he drops his head. But as soon as the judge says guilty and declares the fine... The judge stands up, takes off his robes, walks to the other side of the bench, takes out a checkbook, and he writes a check for the fine, paid in full. Because the judge was also his father. The gospel message is not that God is just overlooking wickedness and evil or sin and unrighteousness. It's that the judge himself knows this world needs something better than vindication. It needs a whole group of people who have been changed from the inside. And only the gospel of Jesus can do it. Because on the cross, Jesus took off his judge's robe, although he is the judge. Because sin has been declared as guilty and wicked and deathly. And if you'll humble yourself, he's offering you a justification where he changes you. 